great. And uh, this morning I want to talk to you about the amazing power of Christ, the amazing power of Jesus over the supernatural. And I called this message, The Perfect Storm. And uh, you're going to find out why when we get into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 8. But before we uh, uh, even read the text, remember when God created the world um, originally, it was without sin. Okay, and he really created man to be the king of earth, the sovereign ruler of the earth. That was his dominion. A lot of people don't realize that. But when man fell into sin, he lost that right. He lost that rule. He lost that sovereignty that he had on the earth. And the earth lost its glory. And immediately, the Bible says that God cursed the earth. And as a result of that, control fell into the hands of Satan, the prince of the power of this world, the God of this age. And you stop and you think about how that affected us. It affected us in myriads of ways. It brought sickness. It brought pain. It brought death. It brought pain and and misunderstanding in human relationships. It brought war and sorrow, famine, injustice, falsehood, disasters, demon activities. All those consequences has plagued the earth And mankind since the fall of man as a result of sin. But God doesn't stop there. Today we're going to be celebrating communion together as believers. And one thing communion points us to is the cross. It points us to God's redemptive plan. The plan to atone for the sins of the world. And if you look at God's glorious redemptive plan... God not only redeemed us as men and women, as his creation, but he's also going to redeem our environment. That should get all the tree huggers excited. God is going to change the environment. He's going to reverse the curse one day. And in order to accomplish that, His redemptive plan, to unfold His redemptive plan, God had to come to earth not once, but twice. The first time He came as Jesus Christ, the Savior, to live a perfect life for 30-some years, to go to the cross, to give up His life voluntarily, to die a cruel death. But He gave it up voluntarily. Nobody took His life, the Bible says. That's the first time he came to redeem man. The second time, he's going to come to redeem the earth and the universe as we know it. And that's twofold. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back the second time, he'll set up a millennial rule here on the earth for a thousand years, a millennial kingdom, the Bible says. That's the first half of his redemption of the universe. And then the second half is after those thousand years, the Bible says that God's going to create a totally new earth and new heavens. Nothing like we've ever seen before. And one thing that God is going to make sure in that kingdom, in that eternal kingdom, there's not going to be any sickness or sorrow or pain or difficulties or demons or disasters. 
everything will be glorious forever. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be holy. Anything that steals our joy, our happiness here on earth will not be there. That's to come. And the Bible says that we will rule and reign with Christ forever as believers in Him. Now, as you look forward to that change, you think of the change of a new heaven and a new earth. That's a pretty big change. That's not, you know, dealing with the carbon footprints and all that stuff. I mean, we're talking about wiping this whole place out and starting over. That's why I like to tell people sometimes, I mean, we should take care of our environment. We should, you know, do what we can to help. But sometimes the people come door to door with their little thing and they want me to sign something. And my comment is always the same. So you think we're really going to save this earth? Oh, yes, if everybody pitches in. I said, well, you know what? There's going to be one who comes that's going to destroy it. The Bible says with fire. You don't know global warming. Okay, then this is nothing. And they just look at me and they go, why? That's what the Bible says. That's what I believe. So I'm not putting a lot of stock in what we see around us. I want to do my part because I think we should be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But on the other hand, it's so tainted by sin, it's irreversible. In our hands. And we think sometimes that we grow mightier and stronger each and every day. I mean, we're able to fire rockets into space that go hundreds, thousands, millions of miles. And we explore all these things. And all we're doing really is polluting space. We build all these machines around us and try to, you know, do things. And basically we're just polluting things. Written a commentary, a doctor once said, for every problem we fix medically, we create six more problems that have to be addressed. That's comforting, isn't it? Man can't bring about a renewed earth. Man can't eliminate the curse. He doesn't have the power to. So if all this is going to happen, somehow we have to look to someone outside of ourselves to harness this change that's going to take place. It's going to be a change and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there's no disease, no difficulty, no disasters, no demons, no sickness. It's going to be all righteous, all holy, all lovely. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. (laughs) Well, God's power is told to us throughout Scripture. In Psalm 62.11, I think it's there in your outline, Psalm 62.11 says, Power belongs to God. In Job 26.14, he said, But the thunder of His power, who can understand? In Psalm 79.11, it talks about the greatness of Thy power, speaking of God. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is great in what? Power. Isaiah 26.4, The Lord God is everlasting power or strength. As we heard this morning, Psalm 65, 6, as Ken read for us, who by his strength set his path the mountains being girded with power. Our God is a powerful God. It's no wonder David cries out in Psalm 63, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for you to see your power. 
The power of God is explicit throughout all of Scripture. But we also see it revealed in the Savior. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says that to a certain degree, God's power is visible as we look at everything around us. I don't know if you ever thought about this. But just think of the universe itself. Last night, I had come over to the church late, and I got home, and I, when I pulled in the driveway and got out of the car, the little light in the backyard didn't go on, and I looked up the sky and just millions of stars. It was incredible. And I just stood there for a second, and I thought of his power. Science tells us that our little telescopes can look out 4 billion light years into space. 4 billion light years. You ready for this? That's 25 sextillion miles. (laughs) That doesn't help you try... 7 times 10 with 67 zeros after it. And they're not even to the edge of space yet. That's just how far they can see. And all they see is these heavenly bodies moving about. Suns and stars. It's amazing. We live on an earth, a ball that's 25,000 miles in circumference, 8,000 miles in diameter. And get this, it weighs six septillion, five hundred sextillion tons. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me. And there's nothing holding it there. It's just there. You say, well, any scientists know that the gravity will, it tells you that it holds. Well, yeah, but what is gravity? Where does the power of gravity come from? Not only that, but this earth that we're on, is spinning on its axis at more than probably a thousand miles an hour. You know, where are the little rockets that make it go? There's nothing there. And it's so accurate that you can set your watch by it to the split second. And not only that, but that spinning Earth is going on an orbit. <laughs> 580 million miles At a speed of a thousand miles a minute. You didn't know you were going so fast this morning, huh? Some of you barely got out of bed. Some of you can't even get in first gear. You know, you're, you're going a thousand miles an hour plus this morning. Not only that, but they tell us our whole universe is careening through space on its own orbit. That takes light years, millions of light years to complete. It's amazing. Well, what makes it go? What makes all this stuff happen? Where's the fuel? Where's the energy? The Lord Jesus Christ has the power to recreate the earth. He has the power to reverse the curse. Read this one thing this week and it said there's like, I don't know how many billions and sextillion or whatever atoms in a, in a teaspoon of water. Just in a teaspoon of water. Billions and billions and billions of atoms. And what's an atom? Atom's a little blob of energy. They say that if you, scientists tell us, if you take an atom and you say, well, what's it made of? 
What matter makes up an atom? They say basically it's energy in motion. You know how much of an atom is actually matter? One trillionth. Everything else is just moving. It's just moving. It's amazing. Who holds all that together? The Bible says the Lord Jesus Christ is the one. He's the one that holds all this together. It doesn't just happen. So when we're talking about recreating the earth, talking about recreating the heaven, this is nothing for him. He's already done it once. He can do it again. And the whole reason Christ came was to show that he is the promised king, the promised Messiah, who would give back the sovereignty to man by restoring the earth and eliminating sin. And he had all the credentials. In Matthew chapter 1, it tells us that God said that this, this person had to come from a certain line of Abraham and David. Well, guess what? Matthew 1 says that he came from that line. In Matthew 2, it tells us that he had the right birth. He was born of a virgin. In Matthew 3, it says that he had the right baptism. He was affirmed by the Father and the anointing of the Spirit. In Matthew 7, he had the right test. Remember, he was tested by Satan. He was tempted by Satan. And he showed his power over the enemy with absolute authority. And in Matthew 5 and 7, we see that he takes all these people and he begins to teach them the right message that needed to be taught. And they were blown away with the way he taught. And that brings us to Matthew 8, where now he's showing us firsthand. He's showing his disciples firsthand that he has the power to do and to be all that he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that theme carries over into the next chapter, even where we read, you know that the Son of Man has power in verse 6. Matthew 9, 6. See, the primary purpose of the miracles that Jesus did was not just to, you know, have a little circus going on and earn some money or whatever. It was to show His power. It was to put His power on display. The miracles are really a foretaste of this kingdom that's going to come. It's not the norm. He was just giving us a little glimpse of what's going to happen down the road. When Jesus healed the sick, He was giving a preview of this glorious kingdom where there would be no sickness. When He raised the dead, He was giving a preview of the glorious kingdom where there would be no dying. When He calmed the waves, He was giving a preview of this kingdom that said that, you know what, there wouldn't be natural elements out of control any longer. When He cast out demons, He was giving the preview of a kingdom where there would be no demon activity whatsoever. When he spoke the truth, he was previewing a kingdom where there would be no lies, but only truth. When he manifested his holiness, he was previewing a kingdom where there would be no unrighteousness, only righteousness all the time. Everything he did spoke to those in his presence. You know what? I am the one. I'm the one that can reverse the curse. I'm the one that can restore sovereignty to man in a glorified, eternal kingdom. The way God originally intended it to be. 
We see that Christ has this power over and over again. We see that in Matthew 9, 8. It says, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power onto men. In Matthew 10, 1, it says, when he had called and when he had called on him, his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. You know what? Put a little note there. These are the only kinds of miracles that the apostles were able to perform. They weren't able to do miracles that dealt with nature. Only Jesus did those. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, All authority is given unto me. That's Christ speaking. In Mark 9, 1, He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There be some of them that stand here who shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And in Luke 5, it says, or Luke 4, verse 32, it says that they were astonished at his doctrine because his words were words that were spoken with power and they were amazed. And in Romans 1, 4, it says, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ, the power of God. You can't get around the Bible without seeing God putting on His power full display through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew here is showing us that Jesus Christ has power over every facet of the curse. Against disease, against death, against Satan, against demons, against the natural elements, against everything else. And therefore, it makes him qualified, the only one who's qualified to be a rightful heir to the earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember, we said there's nine miracles here in Matthew 8 and 9, and there's, there's broken up in sets of three. We first looked at the first three, which dealt with disease. And the next three show his power over the natural elements. That's what we're going to be looking at today and in the coming weeks. Supernatural world and sin. He, prov- he presents these three kind of triple miracles, sets of, of, of miracles, and he's, after each set, there's a response from the people. Last week we saw the response of the disciples. After they saw all these miracles, the three miracles, three of them basically said, ah, I'm not going to follow you. I got other things to do, other places to go. Sorry, Jesus. I'm going to go my own way. Even after they saw all his power on display. And at one point, Jesus marveled, it says, at their unbelief. The first group was thrilled with the power of Christ. They were thrilled with his teaching. But when Jesus said, you know what? Difficult times are going to come. I don't even have a place to lay my head. To a one, each of these examples in Scripture said, ah, see you later. I don't have time. I'm not going to follow you. And so we move into the second set of miracles here, which will end with a different response. But let's look at the particulars of what's going on here in the text. And I'll just read it for us. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 27. It says, Now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. And so the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and woke him. 
saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Look at what it says there right off the beginning. It says, now when Jesus saw a great multitude about him. Remember, this crowd is pressing in. He was tired. He was worn out physically. He was God, but he was still a man. And he just said, you know what? I can't effectively minister anymore in my humanity. I need to get away. Let's get in the boat. We'll go to the other side. And it was late. We know that because earlier it says it was already late. So by this time, it's probably already dark. In this little boat, they left the shore of, of uh, Capernaum there to go to the other side. And it's probably five or six miles. And they have these little boats, these fishing boats. They're nothing fancy about them. They have them on display over there. And, you know, it's just an open boat, kind of a deep, deep-hauled boat. Maybe, you know, 20, 25 feet long, some of the bigger ones. But some of them aren't even that big. And it says here, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. It's interesting because Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus already selected the 12 disciples by this point in the chronology of the Gospels. And it's very likely that they were already in the boat with him. And so this reference here in verse 23, his disciples followed him. Who is he talking about? That word disciple is a very broad word. There's nothing magical about that word. Mathetes in the Greek. And it it basically identifies you as a pupil or learner or someone that's following someone. That's what it means. That's all it means. Some like to make it a secondary level of Christianity. In other words, you have believers, then you have the real disciples. That word, you can't get that out of that word. That's not what that word means. That word simply means someone who follows somebody. Someone who sits under teaching. This morning, you're here. You're sitting in this church. I'm up here preaching, teaching your disciples. Whether you like it or not, that's how it works out. You may be sitting there going, I don't like anything you've said so far, and I don't think... It doesn't matter. That's my point. Some of you may be going, yeah, right on. Some of you may be saying, hey, you know what? The game, let's go get this over with. I don't know where your heart is, but God does. See, but the important thing is, is you're a student. You're a learner this morning. doesn't mean you have to agree with everything the teacher says. Just like when you take a class in college, you may be a student in the class, but you don't have to agree 100% with the professor. So this is not referring to some second level of Christianity. You become a Christian and then you got to work really hard and maybe if you're lucky, you become a disciple. That's not what it's talking about. It's just talking about somebody who follows Christ. And when you look at it in its context in different places, you can see that. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about this a little bit. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. 
Well, what disciples? Are you talking about the twelve? Is that what it's talking about? Some people think Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to the twelve. And everybody else just kind of heard it because they were kind of gathered around there. But when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, you can't miss the emphasis on salvation. Probably wasn't at that point preaching to his 12 disciples. He's probably referring here to his disciples, probably just these people that came to hear him teach. That's all. It identifies a multitude of people who are interested to hear what Jesus said. It didn't have anything to do with their level of commitment. Basically, that's undetermined at this point, you might say. In Matthew 8, if you look at Matthew 8, verse 21, we looked at this last week. One disciple basically said, you know what? I'm not going to follow you until my father dies. I'm going to go home and wait for dad to, to die. And then once he does, I'll get my inheritance and then I'll come and follow you. And it called him a disciple. But being a disciple basically means that you're a learner. You may not be a committed believer. In John 15, 6, this is a tough passage for a lot of people. When they read this, Christ said that any branch that did not bear fruit would be cut off and thrown into the fire. So people look at that and they go, oh, does that mean you can lose your salvation? What is that saying? Well, what does it mean when you abide in Christ? What, what, how do you describe that? There are some disciples that are connected to Christ somehow. They're part of His disciples. They're part of His followers. They're part of His pupils. But they had no fruit of righteousness in their life, the Bible says. They had nothing to mark out their true salvation. So therefore, they were separated from Christ. They were followers, but they were not believers. Big difference. There's such a big difference in being a committed follower and believer of Christ and just being a follower. You think in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23, we're not going to read all these, but you can just read them on your own. There's four types of soil. And it kind of depicts lives of disciples who are following Christ. And you read through that parable and only one of those soils actually gives any kind of growth, enables the seed to mature and become productive. There was only one real one. Three were not. In Matthew 10... Jesus said the true disciples would endure, endure to the end. Who is he talking to? He's probably talking to Judas, who was one of his disciples, but was not by any means a believer. See, the word in itself only indicates that people were attracted to Jesus. And you know what? Today, in the day and age we live in, people are attracted to Jesus for all sorts of reasons, and most of them are wrong. Which is sad. It's unfortunate. Because in their mind, somehow they think that they're doing God a favor by following Jesus, by being a disciple of Jesus. But they haven't taken the time to figure out how Jesus said that you're to follow Him. That might be important. Just quickly here, there's four different kinds of disciples, you might say. 
First, the curious. Curious disciples followed Jesus just out of fascination. They were intrigued with what he said. And Jesus says, basically, at one point, he says, unless you're willing to affirm my total lordship in your life, you cannot be my disciple, nor can you enter my kingdom. If you're not willing to make a full commitment to Christ, don't even bother. It says in John 6, verse 66, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him after he spelled out what it took. The curious. There's also the committed. We see after that where the twelve showed that they were more than just followers. When Jesus asked him, will you go away? What did Peter reply? Whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And we believe that surely you're the Christ. You're the one that came from God. In other words, Peter was saying, we're not like these other disciples. We're not here just because we're curious. We're here because we're committed. We know you speak the truth. There's also the intellectually convinced. Nicodemus is a good example of that. He came to Jesus and by night, not seen by anybody. And he says, you must be from God. I think you're from God. Just intellectually, I think you are. He was intellectually convinced. But the Bible says that he didn't believe in Christ in the fullest sense. Because he didn't forsake all to follow him. He didn't say that. The last group, the clandestine, the, the people who were like Joseph of Arimathea, who kept their belief a secret. Didn't want anybody to know. Fear of persecution. So in this broad use, the word disciple, that includes Peter's, that includes Judas's, that includes Nicodemus's, Joseph of Arimathea's, all these. As well as others who would probably take off in a second as soon as it got rough with Jesus. The word doesn't signify anything specific other than you're a follower of Christ for whatever reason. It's important to understand that. And so all these categories of disciples were following Jesus and he was about ready to put on a display for them that was beyond their belief. So we come to verse 24 where the storm is and we see this crisis happening in Matthew 8, 24. It says, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. Like I said, these boats are open boats. They're kind of small. Most of them are small. And this is a very proliferate, very uh, just incredible place for fishing over there. That's what they do. They still do that today. But just the geography of the place over there where you have the, the Sea of Galilee and, and the Dead Sea down south, that's thousands some feet below sea level. And even the, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. And then you have Mount Hermon that's about 10,000 feet, I think. And so you have the perfect place for major storms to happen on this little lake. That's what it is. Eight miles wide at its widest part, 13 miles long. It's not a big ocean. But it's placed strategically that, you know what, storms can come up like that. And remember, most of these guys were fishermen. They knew what was going on. 
And when they got on the boat in Capernaum, everything looked good, man. It's just like slick as glass. No problem. By the time they reached the middle, out from the shore, somehow, there was this storm brewing. I'll tell you why. It was the perfect storm that was given by God. It says, in the dark of night, there arose a great tempest. That word tempest is the word seismos. It's where we get the word seismograph. It's the idea that somehow God took the earth and he began to shake it. What happens when you take a bowl of water and begin to shake it? If I take this and I start shaking it, pretty soon what's going to happen? The water's going to spill all over. That's exactly what he did with the earth. And then the other gospel accounts tell us about a whirlwind and a storm. So you have this this cataclysmic shaking plus the wind and everything was just right. Incredible storm. These guys were fishermen. They've been out there a million times probably. They've seen storm after storm after storm. Look at what they they do here in in verse uh, 25. It says, And his disciples came to him and awoke him. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing here because when you look at the different gospel accounts of this, it's kind of like the storm arose and, and behold, they, they never saw anything like this before. It blew their mind. These are a bunch of fishermen in a fishing boat with the Lord and they're just blown away by what they're seeing. Look at the end of verse 24. But he was asleep. <laughs> Speaking of the Lord. He was asleep. Sleep. He must have been tired. He must have been very tired in his humanity. I mean, doing all these miracles, ministering to all these people, people pressing in around you all the time. It speaks of his humanness. He was so tired when he got in the boat, they gave him a cushion. He just went to sleep. Down the bottom of the boat. And the storm came. I mean, and this isn't any just normal storm. This is a major storm in this little boat. And even the storm didn't wake him up. It's amazing. Of course, his sleeping was part of the divine plan, I believe. The storm was tossing his little boat like a cork on the ocean. While the creator of the universe... slept peacefully in the hull of the boat with his head on a cushion. By the way, while he was sleeping there peacefully, he was still holding all those atoms together. Amazing. Everything around him. Mark, Mark's account, it says the water, the boat was filling up with water. We see the reality here of Christ's humanity as well as his confidence, fearless confidence that he had in his heavenly father. In the care that his father provided for him. I mean, wouldn't you like to be like that? Wouldn't you like to to have the kind of confidence, the kind of faith 
that Christ did, that there could be storms going around you all the time. And you know what? You're sleeping in the hull of the boat. You're not concerned with that. So many times, you know, in life, our circumstances get turned up a notch and maybe they turn for the worse or whatever. And we get tossed around a little bit. And what do we do? We begin to mistrust God right away. We begin to panic. The heart of our Lord was perfectly calm because He was fully assured that He was in God's care. He was in God's care. We need to learn that. And the sailors did everything possible. Obviously, they didn't want to, you know, sure the winds, winds kicked up and everything. They probably didn't run right away to Jesus. Oh, there's a storm. They said, hey, we're sailors. We can deal with this. We're fishermen. We've been out here a million times. Well, this storm just blew them away so much that eventually they had to go wake up the Son of God. And you say, well, that shows their faith in Him. No, I, I think that kind of shows that they were hoping Him to be the Son of God, the God that He claimed to be. At this point, we don't know really where their faith was because he kind of questions that. But these sailors did everything possible and it came time where they just gave up hope and the only thing they could do was reach out to him. Look at verse 25. And the disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Save us, we're perishing. In Mark, it reads, Master, care thou not what we perish, that we perish? Don't you care, Jesus? Look at what's going on around us. And in desperation, they cried out to him, we're all drowning here. Hey, wake up, sleepyhead. See, they weren't necessarily convinced that he was the Christ, that he was God. But they were hoping he was. Because they were in a, in a problem they couldn't fix. They didn't know where else to turn. And they were looking for a divine solution. Isn't that how it is when we run out of human solutions with our problems so many times? Then we go to the divine solution. Then we get on our knees and we pray. After we've kind of figured out, well, this is a mess and I can't do anything to fix it. Well, God, I guess here I'll throw it on you. You know, it's kind of like, you know... It's, it's kind of like you're working on your car. You think you can do it. And you get halfway through a project and you realize you don't have the talent, the gift, the tools, nothing. It's a big mess. you got bolts and nuts everywhere. And you call up a friend who's an automaker. Hey, do you mind come over working on my car? Sure. And they show up and they're, what, what is, what's going on? No one likes to pick up a project like that. It's already a mess. The disciples broke in on Jesus' sleep. Because they were desperate. See, that's a picture of us coming to Christ. That's how desperate we have to be when we come to Christ. And we cry out to Him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have to be at the bottom of the game. You can't be holding on to all your goodies saying, well, okay, I'm just going to add Jesus to my bag of goodies and now I'm a, quote, Christian. It doesn't work that way. Christ says, you know what, just stay home. If that's going to be the way you're going to follow me because I don't have time for it. They're kind of like the sea captain who didn't believe that there was a God until he got washed overboard and he began to cry out to him to save him. 
And when the crew pulled him back on board, they said, hey, I thought you were an atheist. You didn't cry out. We heard you crying out to God out there, you know, in the waves. And he said, well, if there isn't a God, there should be a God for times like this. (laughs) We're kind of like that sometimes. Many of us cry out to God in desperation when there's sickness, death, or distress, marital problems, employment problems, financial problems. Even salvation is is an act of God in response to our desperate cry for help as sinners. But a lot of times our first cry is like that of the disciples in Mark. Don't you care? That's what basically they said to him. Jesus, don't you care? You're sleeping. We're drowning here. What do you, you don't even care. It's not a question of whether you can help us. You don't even care. That's how we approach God sometimes. We find ourselves in situations and we look at God. Don't you care? Look at what's going on. I'm being persecuted for this. I'm, this is falling apart. Whatever. And we get frustrated. In the Old Testament, it tells us that. They're listed there in your outline. You can look those up. Psalm 10.1, Why stand thou far off, O Lord? Hide yourself in times of trouble, as if God's really hiding himself from us. Silly. All those verses speak of basically what our perception sometimes is of God. See, it's not that either we we question that he cares and then we question that he has the power that he can do anything. We question those two things or both of them. Look at his reply to his disciples in verse 26. After he woke up. (laughs) By the way, he's probably soaking wet. That shows you how sound that he was sleeping. Probably soaked, drenched. I mean, everybody in the whole boat had to be drenched. The boat was full of water. And there's Jesus sleeping down there on a pillow. How nice. When he woke up, here's what he says. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? I mean, picture yourself with the disciples in the boat. It's night. You've probably made this trip a million times before. This is the first time you've ever been in a storm like this to this proportion. It's just overwhelming. You're tired. They were probably as tired as Jesus was. They were up with him the whole time doing everything Jesus did pretty much. They were probably worn out physically too. And there's Jesus sleeping in the hall of the boat. They go and they wake him up. Hey, don't you care? We're about to drown here. The boat's going down, pal. You might want to get your head off the pillow. And he says, what are you fearful? Why are you fearful, ye of little faith? And his disciples probably looked at him and said, looked at each other and probably said, you've got to be kidding me. It's dark. We have waves coming in here. I mean, what do you mean? It's the middle of the night. We've never seen a storm like this before. And you're asking us, why are we fearful? Hello, get a clue. What don't you get here? That Greek word for fearful there means cowardly. We find it in Revelation 21.8, and it indicates that cowardness is a sin. Fearfulness is a sin that will not enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Mark 
tells us that Jesus didn't just say, oh, ye of little faith. Mark's account says, how is it that you have no faith? That's probably a better rendering of what was going on at the time. Someone with such a lack of faith is guilty of doubting God's love and His power. Write those two things down. When you doubt God's love and His power, you're going to have problems trusting God. You're going to be fearful. But if you believe in those two key attributes of God, that He, first of all, loves you, and He has the power to spare you if it's His will, bring it on. You're going to weather any storm that comes your way. Because you know that, first of all, God cares about you. And secondly, that he can handle any situation. Nothing's beyond him. The disciples were questioning Jesus' care and his ability to help them. That's what he was doing. Even though he had performed all these kinds of miracles in their sight. But that's kind of how it is. A lot of times in our Christian lives, you know, we see God work incredible things either in our own lives or in other people's lives and we're like yeah man god's powerful well that's incredible praise god and then something happens in our life and what do we do oh god you don't care anymore i don't think you have the power to get me out of this beloved i don't care what you're going through today as you sit here Understand these two things. If you, if you miss everything else, understand that, first of all, God loves you. He, got, he loves you so much He sent His own Son to die on a cross for you. He cares for you. He loves you. And He also has the power to deal with whatever you're dealing with. It doesn't matter what it is. You could say, well, you don't understand my situation. You know what? You could tell me your situation and I probably still wouldn't understand it. But I'm not God. He is. He understands exactly what you're going through this morning. We begin to question His love and His power. And, and, and Jesus here He got through to the disciples. The disciples finally learned that they didn't have enough faith. And in Luke 17, 5, it says that the disciples cried out to the Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Give us a little help here, Jesus. And what did he do? Immediately after that, the Bible says that he went out and he healed ten lepers. Just like that. Yeah, how's that? Is that helping your faith now? We need to be reminded that God cares for us. He loves us. Even if the disciples were drowning, they could still trust God, knowing that he would usher them into an eternal kingdom. See, that's why Christians don't have to fear death. You know, you don't have to look forward to the process of dying. I don't. I mean, it's probably not a fun process to go through, however it would happen. I don't like to dwell on that. But knowing that I know Christ, knowing that I'm assured a place in glory in heaven with Him, not because of who I am or what I do, but because of His righteousness that was given to me, it was imputed on me. A filthy, rotten, no good, bottom-dwelling sinner. And He reached down and He saved me by His grace. Why? I have the slightest idea. But He did. 
And he'll save you too if you cry out to him this morning. Over and over in the Psalms, you see this. In Psalm 107, just one here I want to read because it, it kind of talks of what really went, ha- happened here in Matthew, actually ha- back in Psalm 107, verses 23 and 30. It says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord, His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and they staggered like a drunken man. Can't you just see him out on the boat? You ever been on a boat that's just, oh, you feel like you're drunk. You feel, ah, it's horrible. It says they were at their wit's end in Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed, it says. And he guided them to their desired haven. That's really a prophecy of what Christ did here in Matthew 8. In Psalm 107, God says He did that. Matthew 8, Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm going to show you something. And He does it. What's the conclusion? Jesus is God. That's the conclusion. That's what He wanted to get across to them. That's why He performed this incredible act. And if the disciples had understood that, they would have nothing to fear. From the particulars to the panic to the power, it says there, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Mark 4.39 says he stood up and commanded the storm to be silent. One commentator says he just stood up in the boat and and leaned out and just said, you know, if I stop shaking this, what happens to the water inside? It's still shaking, right? Think about the miracle here. Everything was smooth as glass, just like that, with the power of his word. That's incredible power. I mean, think of the power that's harnessed in a... If you could harness that power in a storm, whether it be a hurricane or... Incredible power. They don't even know. They can't even calculate sometimes the power that's that's in those storms. Here Jesus just says, shh, quiet. It just stops. Everything stops. Total control over nature. In verse 27... The word portent means marvel or just amazement. And in verse 27, it says, The men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the seas and the wind obey him? Where did this guy come from, is what they're saying. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, you read this account, and it says that, well, when the storm broke out, the men were fearful. They were fearful. That's what it says. But when Jesus stood up in the boat and said, shh, and and everything just stopped, it says they were exceedingly fearful at this point. They were exceedingly fearful. 
The one thing that's more terrifying than being caught up in a little boat at night in the middle of the storm, the one thing that's scarier and more fearful than that is standing in the very presence of the living God. must have been awesome for them. And that's the reaction by Job, by Isaiah, by Daniel, by Peter, by Paul. Isaiah said, depart from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter cried out to the Lord when he was faced with who God was, face to face, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus, when the Lord met him there, he was just struck dumb, he fell down, he was blind. When we get to Matthew 14, we're going to find another storm that comes up, and they're in a boat. When he hushed the storm, here's what the reaction was. They were in the boat and they came and they says they worshipped him, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God. See, Christ performed these miracles so that people could see his incredible power. You ask, can Christ reverse the curse? Yes, he can. He definitely can. Can he save you out of your sin? Yes. I don't care what your background is doesn't matter. He died so that you could live in eternity with Him forever. Quick three things here get out of this. God does not get shook up by your storms. When something comes into your life, beloved, don't think God's up there going, oh no, what am I going to do now? You really messed it up this time, Steve. I don't have a plan for this. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Jesus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says in Hebrews 13. He doesn't change. We don't serve a God who gets all shook up and, and, and changes. Secondly, God is bigger than your circumstances. God is bigger than your circumstances. We have to understand that clearly. Romans 8.31 says, With God on our side... How can we lose? How, how could we lose? What is there to worry about? Well, you know, I'm just worrying. I might not have a job. I might financial. I might marriage my kids. I mean, we can worry about other things. I'm just saying that, you know what? If you're worrying about anything, you're just displaying your lack of trust in God. You think either he can't do what he says or he won't do, which means he doesn't care. And thirdly, walking in faith builds faith. Walking in faith builds our faith. The more faith I use, the more I gain. The more you see God work in your life, it's just incredible. You just step back and you go, man, I can't believe he got me through this one. Wow. What's next? God knows what's next. And he wants you this morning. To put your heart into his hands. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in him and only him. Let's bow in a word of prayer and then we'll have our communion time. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we've learned a lot of different things. How to trust you. How to have faith in the midst of storms. Lord, we know that you care for us. You love us, and we know that you can. You, you have the power to deal with whatever we're facing. 
Save us, Lord, from being of little faith, of not trusting you in the midst of dark times. Lord, help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the living God, that only He can redeem man, that only He can redeem this cursed earth and set up His glorious kingdom. Lord, I do pray this morning that no one will leave this place not knowing who Christ is, not having come to faith to believe in Him, truly believe, not just Adam as an accessory to their life, but to be convinced that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, the one who died and rose again, that they could put their faith in Him. Those of us who are believers here this morning, Lord, I pray that You would remind us of this flesh that we're caught in that leads to doubts, that leads to questions. How many times, Lord, have we turned our hand to You and said you don't care and entered into some kind of self-pity session questioning the love that you've promised us, questioning the power that's at our disposal through Christ. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for communion time, Lord, that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in you, I ask that you would do that, that you would grant them repentance here this morning, that you would cause them to cry out to you in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their storm, that they would know that there's one who is more powerful, all-powerful, and nothing is too big for you to handle. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.